0: Thank you very much, uh, Bridget. And thank you to to Paul and the the team here at Bond for the opportunity to contribute today. I was sorry to have missed uh, this this conference last year and I'm I'm really happy to be here uh, this year and to to talk about exercise with with like-minded people. I'm also really happy that peripheral arterial disease has got a Guernsey at the meeting. It's often the forgotten uh, cardiovascular condition. So I'm hoping today to um, to convince uh, a few more people that Peripheral arterial disease is a condition that's worthy of our attention. Um, Of course, most of you will know that peripheral arterial disease is another of the atherosclerotic, atherothrombotic uh, conditions, and it's characterized by these uh, stenoses and occlusions of the main uh, conduit arteries. Here you can see an example of a very tight, Uh, Focal stenosis in the the common iliac artery of this person. And here's an example down below of a complete occlusion of the superficial femoral artery, the main artery running through the thigh. The characteristic of both of these uh, examples is that these patients would have a limited blood flow capacity to their lower leg and to their foot. Being an atherosclerotic disease or an atherothrombotic disease, it's, it's not surprising that patients with peripheral arterial disease are at an elevated risk of cerebrovascular disease uh, leading to stroke and coronary artery disease potentially leading to myocardial infarction. And indeed patients, this is data from the the REACH registry which many of you will be familiar with. This is following tens of thousands of patients worldwide and three to 5,000 patients here in Australia. And it demonstrated after one year follow-up that the cardiovascular death rates in patients with PAD were higher than those uh, patients with established cerebrovascular disease or established uh, coronary artery disease. Indeed the rates of non fatal myocardial infarction and stroke and the rates of hospitalisation because of a cardiovascular event are all higher, are all significantly higher in PAD patients than they are in patients with those other more established cardiovascular diseases. So this uh, issue of cardiovascular risk is a significant issue that we need to consider for patients with PAD. Of course, the thing that we consider uh, uh, when we think of patients with PAD is the risk to their limb, and indeed there is a significant risk to the lower limbs. Uh, the first sign of peripheral arterial disease is generally uh, exercise-induced pain, intermittent claudication and other like symptoms. with the progression of the underlying pathology, uh, the progression of the underlying limitation in blood flow, there is a progression in symptoms right through to uh, signs of critical limb ischemia, including rest pain, uh, signs of tissue uh, necrosis and and ulceration, and and full-blown gangrene. Most symptomatic patients, 90% of symptomatic peripheral arterial disease patients suffer from intermittent claudication, uh, and they'll be my focus today. A characteristic of these patients is their limited exercise tolerance. And here you can see uh, just an example from one study that clearly shows that the, the distance that patients are able to walk during an incremental treadmill test, like a stress test, is, sig- is significantly lower. It's, it's less than half in patients with peripheral, peripheral arterial disease than it is in older adults without PAD. With this, there's a significant reduction in their cardiorespiratory fitness. VO2 peaks in this study of around 16 mls per kilogram per minute, which you would know is it puts these patients on par with patients with severe heart failure, class three heart failure. So this represents a significant limitation uh, for these patients. And with that, there's reductions in the patient's mobility, their daily activity levels. This, of course, only further exacerbates their already high cardiovascular risk, um, and ultimately this contributes to their impaired quality of life Exercise training, there are are various treatments available for peripheral arterial disease, and exercise training as an intervention is perhaps the most effective intervention for improving exercise capacity in PAD patients. And this is a meta-analysis, perhaps the the first meta-analysis of exercise training in PAD that was published in JAMA in 1995 by the Gardner and colleagues. And it clearly shows that the distance that patients are able to walk maximally and the distance that they're able to walk until the onset of pain are significantly increased, more than doubled in some cases, with a program of exercise training. And it was this meta-analysis that really led to the original exercise prescription guidelines for PAD patients. The original ACSM guidelines were based on the outcomes of this meta-analysis. One of the complications in trying to understand the influence of exercise training on functional capacity in PAD patients is the various ways in which exercise capacity is measured. Uh, Many uh, studies in the literature will utilize uh, an incremental walking test. Clinically, however, many patients are assessed with a constant load treadmill test, where the, the speed of the treadmill is fixed, the gradient might be fixed at 10 or 12%, And patients are essentially asked to walk as far as they can until their symptom-limited maximum. More and more studies, not only exercise studies, but uh, pharmacotherapy interventions and other clinical trials are utilizing six-minute walking distance as an outcome. And uh, this meta-analysis from earlier in the year by Belinda uh, Parmenter and colleagues, many of you will know Belinda, and she's a colleague and former student of of Maria's. clearly demonstrates the effect of exercise training on six-minute walking distance. You can see the positive effects on six-minute walking distance. So since that original meta-analysis in 1995, there have been at least 100 additional published studies investigating exercise training in peripheral arterial disease, and there have been dozens of additional narrative reviews, systematic reviews, and other meta-analyses, most of them from Maria's group, actually. Despite this, most of the work that's been done continues to follow the guidelines that we were following 20 years ago. Most studies are adopting those guidelines. There have been very few studies to challenge those guidelines or to refine those exercise prescription guidelines. And our our current guidelines are these, that patients should undertake interval walking until the point of moderate levels of pain, that they should then rest and then continue with the next interval of exercise that they should continue that until they accumulate at least 30 to 40 minutes or more of exercise in a session and that they should uh, conduct three supervised sessions per week. Uh, These modern guidelines make allowances and in fact encourage the adoption of other forms of aerobic exercise besides walking. And of course, they encourage the use of resistance training as well. The recommended program duration for patients with peripheral arterial disease is, is four to six months. And this is based very loosely on uh, systematic reviews and evidence like this. This is from Andrew Bormer and Jeff Coombs. I'm gonna try and cite everyone in the audience today. Um, and this clearly shows that the improvement in walking ability uh, generally increases up until the point of 14 to 16 weeks of training, and thereafter there's perhaps you know, slower or fewer further gains to be made Uh, with exercise training. So again, this this type of evidence, this collective evidence has been used to loosely support the recommendation that four to six months of training should be uh, conducted. This study by Andrew Gardner and colleagues aimed to determine the optimal exercise program length for patients with intermittent claudication. And they did this by investigating the serial changes in walking distance over the course of a six month exercise program. And you can see that there were indeed significant gains in both the claudication onset time and the peak walking time from baseline to two months and from two months to four months. There were even small gains, although non-significant, from four months through to six months. Uh, What these authors noted was that, of course, the volume of exercise is is, is changing throughout the training program. We know that as we progressively overload a program, the volume of exercise should be increasing. These authors also pointed out that adherence to the program becomes challenged as the the program continues. So um, adherence to the program becomes compromised with each month of training. So to account for these changes in exercise volume, the authors represented the improvement in exercise capacity relative to the volume of exercise that had actually been done. They did this quite crudely just by expressing the change relative to the miles that had been walked on a treadmill. And you can see that all of the gains relative to the effort that was put in were made within the first two months. Beyond two months, there were diminishing returns on the effort um, that was being made by the patients. So that in months two to four and four to six, the relative gains uh, expressed uh, relative to the, to the miles walked uh, were, were very, very small. So these authors concluded that perhaps we need to be considering shorter exercise programs where adherence might be greater Um, The the benefits uh, would be not much less than is achieved with a four to six month program, um, and perhaps uh, the the programs would be more cost effective and less resource intensive. So that's something to think about. One of the challenges, I think, in exercise prescription broadly is uh, the issue of a dose response, and I think in the area of peripheral arterial disease, we really have no idea of the, the true dose response relationship when it comes to exercise training. One of my former students uh, undertook this very crude analysis of about 50 to 55 studies that had used incremental walking tests as the primary outcome measure. And he crudely uh, calculated exercise volume for each of the studies by uh, multiplying the session frequency by the session duration, and he, he reported that Uh, studies that had a a training volume of 100 to 200 minutes per week were perhaps the most likely to achieve these greatest uh, changes in both pain-free walking distance and maximum walking distance. And in the same cluster of studies he noted that studies that included more than 200 minutes of training per week were actually uh, not likely to achieve any further gains in uh, either pain-free or maximum walking distance. So while this lends some support to the current guideline that patients should exercise three times per week for about 40 minutes per week, it's not evidence that I think that guideline is based on. In fact, I don't think we have evidence to support that particular guideline. And I reiterate the message that I think we we really need to um, encourage more researchers to understand the dose-response relationship uh, for patients with peripheral arterial disease. Much is made about exercise intensity in patients with peripheral arterial disease and the recommended exercise intensity at the moment is that patients should walk to the point of moderate claudication pain. Following that original meta-analysis in 1995, the recommendation was actually that patients should walk to maximum pain or to near maximum pain. And that was based on this observation that in the six studies where patients did walk to maximum pain, the gains in pain-free walking distance and maximum walking distance was significantly greater than for patients in the 15 studies where they were encouraged just to walk to the point of the onset of pain, the threshold of pain, before they rested, before the next bout. Our guidelines have become a a little more conservative since then for a few different reasons. There's been some evidence that high-intensity exercise, particularly exercise that it does induce that maximum pain, might be exacerbating the acute inflammatory response to exercise, and that may be a good thing, but it may not be. There is some uncertainty. Um, There are some questions around the influence of high-intensity exercise on the compliance to the exercise program. And indeed, there has been some evidence to support the fact that lower-intensity exercise, exercise where pain is not induced, um, may also be effective. It wasn't until very recently that someone actually bothered to ask the question, do we need any pain at all to achieve these benefits for patients with peripheral arterial disease? Uh, and this study out of Poland uh, asked that question and, and compared uh, a, a treadmill walking program where patients either walk to the point of moderate pain. Now, claudication is often rated on a five-point scale, one being no pain, two being the onset of pain, and three, four, and five being mild, moderate, and maximum pain, respectively. So the the moderate pain group walked until the point of a a rating of four out of five and then stopped and rested. The patients in the uh, pain onset group walked to a a, a rating of two out of five and then they would stop and rest before the next bout of exercise. The volume of exercise from a a, a minute's point of view, a duration point of view, was matched between the two groups. Started off at 35 minutes and progressed over the 12-week period to an hour of exercise per session. That's not the same as saying that the, the The exercise was work-matched because the gradient of the treadmill needed to be altered to ensure that patients were reaching the the moderate level of pain within the three to five minute bout. So that difference aside, um, what you'll notice is that the change in the pain-free walking time and the change in the maximum walking time with these programs was not different. So this raises the question as to whether pain and intensity of exercise is even important at all. And in my mind, it comes back to this really important question about the volume of exercise and the dose of exercise. We, we really don't understand the influence of exercise dose. Interval walking is the recommended form of exercise for patients with peripheral arterial disease. Um, again, this, um, this wasn't a meta-analysis, a, a systematic review by Belinda, and Maria was the senior author on this, uh, this review. Um, clearly showed that most studies, it might be hard for me to find that there, but the third from the left there shows walking studies where walking has been performed to moderate pain. You can see that most studies are performed uh, using that modality, and indeed there are some significant gains to be made with that form of exercise. But this review nicely, uh, or highlighted nicely, that the potential benefits that can be derived through other forms of leg exercise, such as cycling or other lower limb exercise, pole striding or Nordic walking, Uh, Arm crank exercise, resistance exercise, and and combinations of various uh, forms and modes of exercise have all been shown to be beneficial uh, at at different levels. Despite that, there's actually very few studies that have made direct comparisons between uh, walking programs and programs that adopt alternative modes of aerobic exercise. In some of our group's early work in the area of PAD, we took an interest in cycling because we noticed that patients were able to cycle with less pain than they experienced during walking. And despite having less pain, they reached the same peak heart rates, the same VO2 peaks, they even had the same lower limb hemodynamic response, the same blood pressure response, and the same blood flow response during the two forms of exercise. So we thought that cycling might potentially be a viable pain-free alternative to walking. As you would have guessed, um, patients in the cycling program achieved the greatest gains in cycling capacity, and patients in the walking program achieved the greatest gains in walking capacity. It was a really complicated study to remind us of the importance of training specificity. All wasn't completely lost, though. We did notice that some patients managed to improve their walking capacity with cycling and they tended to be the older patients, and they tended to be the patients who had the lowest cardiorespiratory fitness. So from this study and other studies like it, uh, we'd conclude that uh, walking should and and is the the exercise of choice for patients with peripheral arterial disease, Uh, but for some patients, particularly the older patients and those who are deconditioned, um, there is a place for other modes of exercise. Perhaps uh, the most surprising series of findings over recent years has been uh, the finding that arm crank training can lead to significant gains in walking capacity in patients with peripheral arterial disease. Um, And this is an area of uh, particular interest for me in that it adds to the intrigue about well what is it mechanistically that's leading to the gains we see in exercise capacity. Again, this review from Belinda Parmenter earlier in the year highlights that arm crank training can also have a significant positive effect on peak VO2. And I think this reinforces the importance of alternative modes of exercise to try and maximize the the physiological changes that might be occurring systemically that contribute not only to the improved walking capacity, but to the the more general benefits of exercise training. And just to finish off, I'm getting lots of flags down here. resistance training, I've I've neglected to really um, give this the attention that it deserves. The recommendation is that patients do include resistance training, as is recommended for all older older adults in their their exercise program. There's perhaps been 10 to 12 studies that have shown very convincingly that resistance training leads to gains in uh, muscular strength, muscular endurance, particularly in the plantar flexor muscles, and that these changes in muscular fitness are associated with improvements in walking capacity. Um, Actually, another recent study from Maria's group showed very nicely that high-intensity resistance, progressive resistance training is perhaps uh, the mode of choice when it comes to resistance training. Um, There have been some studies that have aimed to compare the effects of resistance training with walking programs on walking distance, and I think the general consensus is that that's not the aim of resistance training. Resistance training can certainly be used um, to to add as an adjunct to the benefits of exercise training, but there's a host of other benefits that can be derived from resistance training um, which supports its inclusion in an exercise program. So I'll leave that there. I can talk more about this patient um, a little bit later on. Um, So I think in summary, we have lots of evidence to support the inclusion of exercise training as part of the therapy for patients with peripheral arterial disease. Uh, Perhaps what we're lacking is some, some detailed evidence around the specifics of exercise prescription in peripheral arterial disease. Thanks very much. Questions now? So does anyone have any questions for Chris? I don't need a microphone. Um, The exercise prescription side of things, within the first Um, within the first five minutes, you want them to hit the onset of pain. Can you explain why that particular duration and how that actually came about? I I think what came first was the fact that patients are limited within five minutes of walking. And so the, the original aim would have been for patients to accumulate something like 20 or 30 minutes of exercise. And most patients are not able to walk for 20 or 30 minutes. So they would walk to their natural point of limitation and that might occur after one minute, it might occur after five minutes. Um, but if they're walking with some degree of effort, it would certainly occur within five minutes. So I, I think that really reflected the nature of the limitation of patients with peripheral arterial disease. It's often referred to as the window shopper's disease in that patients can you know, comfortably walk to the next shop, have a look in the window, rest, ready to go again, walk to the next shop, stop, and rest, um, and that might be one minute. It might be up to five minutes of exercise. In our experience, the the, the typical limitation is perhaps within one to two minutes, in fact. Thank you very much, Bernie Taylor. Um, Just interested in the physiological mechanism here. Is it about developing collateral um, blood flow or dilatation of existing vessels? or Has anyone looked at that? So... This is an area of particular interest to me. There's a whole host of potential mechanisms, and the assumption often is that patients um, are improving their collateral blood flow circulation. In fact, the evidence for that is very, very weak. So it's likely to be other factors related to the muscle morphology, the muscle metabolism, the microcirculation, the rheology of the blood, other neural adaptations. Um, This figure, again, from one of um, Belinda and, and Maria's reviews, shows very nicely the change in absolute claudication distance, so the distance that patients are able to walk, and on the uh, y-axis you see the change in the resting ankle to brachial index, which is the marker of hemodynamic limitation or disease severity. And you can see, for any given change in walking distance, there's little or no change in the ankle to brachial index. And it's this type of evidence that tells us that it's not likely to be an improvement in blood flow capacity that necessarily underpins the improvement. That doesn't tell you what the mechanism is. It tells you what it might not be. Um, we're interested in blood flow. We, th- we think that resting measures like this miss a lot of the story. We're trying to measure blood flow during exercise. Um, capillary supply is perhaps, I think, the next most important factor. There's, there's lots of strong evidence now that shows very strong relationships between the improvements in exercise capacity and VO2 peak and the, the distribution of the available blood supply to the, to the working muscle. Probably got time for one more question. Paul? Ah, thanks, Bruce. That was really good. Um, I'm a GP and I was sort of curious about the practicalities of this, in particular, the, the comfort of the patient and the outcomes. And I was interested in the cycling versus treadmill study because mm. it seems to me some patients would actually enjoy the cycling, it's giving them less pain, and they may persist longer. Yeah. That is, I'll keep it up, whereas they'll give up the the treadmill one because they're getting the claudication and the pain. Yeah, yeah. Um, So first of all, was the study, how long was that um, treadmill versus cycling study? Have you done anything longer term as well? No, we haven't. So that was a short, that was the six-week training program, which is far from ideal. Uh, We did follow those patients up for a further 12 weeks, and there was no difference in the the adherence to to programs once the supervision stopped. So there's some limited evidence that, that might answer your question. Um, we certainly have an interest in this idea of pain-free exercise, and we're even looking at passive exercise as a, as a modality of exercise that might be used particularly for the, uh, the very limited patients. Um, but no, we, we don't really have the evidence to answer your question, but it, it's, it's something that's logical to me and something we're interested in pursuing. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. All right, thanks, Chris. Thanks. We might wrap that up. We move on to the next presenter.